0: Welcome to the Determined Truth podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome back in. We are going to be starting our series in Matthew today, long awaited. We've we've knocked out Mark and now we're we're like one book of 27 down, so we're almost there. Yeah. Almost done. And then we only have 39 more after that. Exactly. So we're going to be, by the time my son goes to college and he's four and a half, uh, we're going to start into Matthew. But before we go there, let's actually look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and what we would call the synoptics. That's a big, fancy word. Mm -hmm. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, Yeah, uh, very good. Synoptics is two words. It means sin and optics. And obviously optics means seeing and soon means together or with. And what it basically refers to is the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in many ways. They tell some, a lot of the same stories, uh, same statements of Jesus. Sometimes, once altered a little bit here, or a little bit there. So, the statistics are: out of six hundred and sixty-two verses in the Gospel of Mark, six hundred nine of them uh, are paralleled in Matthew, and four hundred and fifty-two are paralleled in Luke. Mm-hmm. So, it's pretty apparent that Matthew, that Mark, and I am sorry, that Matthew and Luke are using Mark as a template and it's not only that because so much of mark is found in matthew and luke's like well how do we know that mark didn't take from matthew and luke it's because the order of the stories in mark is actually the the order that they appear in matthew and luke mm-hmm. so matthew and luke is, are clearly just following the story of the gospel of mark and they're they're kind of borrowing from it there's only 30 verses in the entire gospel of mark that are not found in matthew and luke uh, matthew or luke and john is just radically distinct so we call Matthew, Mark and Luke the synoptics. That's what we started with Mark was because it's probably the first gospel, mm-hmm. it's the one that Matthew and Luke are using. And then uh, from there once we have that down, we have the contents of Mark down, okay, it's just actually easier to go to Matthew and Luke afterwards.
0: Yeah. And if someone was interested in maybe reading the gospel accounts this way to see how things are similar, they could read what, in what's called a harmony of the gospels, right?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, you can because the harmony of gospels will follow the order. Mm-hmm. That's that's right. Yep. Yeah.
0: Cool. Um, so this has been somewhat of an issue, though, for biblical scholars. Not not from the time of not going back like two thousand years, but, but in the last couple hundred years, right? right? This is this has kind of been maybe a debate, a conflict. You know, even in certain pockets of of the world, when you look at Germany and certain areas, mm-hmm. what's the main consensus now? Like, in, and you know, amongst scholars, and then why
1: does this matter for Christians? Right. So the scholarly consensus initially late 1800s, early 1900s, especially in Germany was that, okay, they're clearly using sources and therefore they're secondhand material and they're not reliable, not trustworthy because they obviously borrowed it from somebody else from somewhere earlier. Now it's pretty clear that one of the main sources was Mark itself. So Mark's at that original source. Secondly, we mentioned this a little bit in our study of Matthew that, you know, what's the dating? Well, there's pretty certain, and again, depends on, on exactly where you're at in the spectrum of conservative liberal, that Mark was probably written before 70. And that's kind of the key, key date because in mm-hmm. 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. And if we have one of the gospels, at least Mark before 70, then you do have Jesus making this statement about Jerusalem being destroyed as a prophetic statement. But even if it's not, even if Mark is written after 70 also, it doesn't matter. The reality is that's still pretty good because mm-hmm. you're looking within 40 years of the lifetime of, you know, of the death of Jesus these stories are written. Now, it's really helpful from, you know, kind of this apologetic standpoint for this defending the faith standpoint. Mm-hmm. If you have one of the Gospels written before 70, for the other reason, that is because there's still Jewish people living in Jerusalem at the time. Some of whom would say, yeah, my dad was there or my rabbi was there when Jesus walked around the earth and he never said that or that didn't happen. Or I, I, I've never heard anything about this. Jesus being crucified. You think if that happened in my city, I would have known about it. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents never said anything about it. So the integrity of the gospel stories, just from a, a core historical standpoint, is really helped if one of them was written by 70 AD when Jews could be in Jerusalem still that would refute the story, because clearly they would want to refute the story. And Matthew even references the fact that, yeah, you know, there's a story being told to this day about how the disciples stole the body. These stories were circulating around and the gospel writers seem to be, be aware of them. Uh, But for the most part, it's not that significant. Now, some Christians are like, well, there's no way because, you know, Matthew was an apostle uh, and he was one of the 12. So why would Matthew use Mark as a source? And that's just just the way they wrote the stories back then. Mm -hmm. They simply wrote stories by using these sources. In fact, and we'll look at this at the beginning of Luke, maybe in more detail next uh, when we do Luke. Uh, Luke verses 1 through 4 says, I'm writing this book to you, Theophilus, because there are so many sources out there, and you don't know which one's true. And so, I'm going to collate all the sources. I'm going to investigate with eyewitness reports. I'll go do the searches, and I think, by the way, that Luke actually talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus herself, and has Mary's testimony. And I'm going to tell you the stories as so that you can know what actually happened. So, using earlier sources was just prevalent; they were there, they were abo- abundant. And Luke tells us he's collating these those sources so that we can have an accurate story of what actually occurred. You know, and then we could go on, you know, in the Book of Acts where, uh, when Judas hangs himself and they have to replace one of the Mm -hmm. disciples, and uh, the requirement is that in order for someone to be one of the disciples, they had to have been present with Jesus from the baptism of Jesus through the resurrection. And I think that shows that that they were really concerned with eyewitness testimony that that the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples. Uh, were responsible for the historical veracity, the trustworthiness of the story, and it starts with them. And if you weren't here the whole time, you you don't get to be one of the twelve. So I, I think overall, they were very concerned with history, and this is just the way they write it.
0: Yeah, and I, I would say even with um, in evangelical circles, which I'm definitely part of, we oftentimes have views of inerrancy yeah. or, or inspiration that says it's almost no one would ever say this, but we might have the idea that like Paul or Matthew or Mark, whoever, like just sat down at their desk and like God kind of zapped them with a lightning bolt and their lies popped in the back of their head. And they just were like the stenographer, just kind of writing down stuff they didn't know. And, And I think one of the things that we need to understand when we look at the Bible and when we understand this idea of inspiration, like God being involved in this process, sometimes that looked like thus says the Lord yeah. <laughs> and, and something is dictated, you know, maybe, maybe in the prophets, sometimes it's the gospel writers writing and just writing a, a story. And sometimes it's history and, uh, you know, someone like Luke saying, Hey, I'm investigating something. And so inspiration could look uh, like many different things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we talk about the, the inspiration, of the scriptures, and we say that God inspired human authors to write. And then what often happens in evangelical circles is, yeah, and their human personality wasn't actually involved. Mm-hmm. It's like, we know their human personality was involved. Just look at first Peter and second Peter in the Greek. They're like two totally different Greek texts. Mm-hmm. One of them was an educated person and the other one was not educated at all. So what's going on here? And then the book of Romans it says, I, Tertius, send my greetings. It's like, yep. hey, dude, I'm the mm-hmm. apostle Paul. I'm inspired. You're like, I'm just dictating this to you. You don't get to add your own insertions, but they did. The scribe for the book of Romans says, hey, guys, hello, how are you doing? Okay, so that verse is actually not inspired because Paul didn't write it. No, no, no. It's human and divine, and that's fine. I think the other thing that's important to realize is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also telling the story with their own perspective and their Mm -hmm. own objectives to this. And what we'll do, we'll do several episodes on Matthew, and then we'll do several episodes on, on Luke. And then we're going to look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and kind of compare them when they bo- all tell the same story or when two of them tell the same story, what are the differences amongst them and what accounts for those differences? And you're going to see each of the author's own particular objectives.
0: Cool. Interesting background. Let's get into the text though. So uh, where do you want to start? Well, let's start with Matthew 1 and let's
1: look at the verse, first 17 verses. I, I was just
0: tempted to start singing The Sound of Music, by the way, because anytime... I. Anyway, that's a very good place to start at the very beginning. Anyway, oh, I wouldn't have known that. Sorry. How do you not know musical theater? Come on. I know from?
1: something from the sound of music. Like the hills are alive. That's all I know.
0: That's all you know. Yeah. So. <laughs>
1: all right. Let's look at Matthew one verses one through 17. Uh, do you want to read it? or want me. This is just boring genealogy. Why would we do that? Exactly. So, all right. We won't read the whole thing. Let's skip to the good stuff. Uh, this is actually the good stuff. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is very significant for a number of reasons. Uh, first off, the very first words in the Gospel of Matthew actually could literally be translated as uh, the book of Genesis. It's often translated as the genealogy of Jesus, which is, which is quite fine. Uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. It's actually the same language that's used in the book of Genesis, and Genesis 2.4 and in Genesis 5.1. This is the generations of the book of, of this. So what's happening then, just in the very first verse, is Matthew's linking his gospel to the story of Genesis and the story of the Old Testament. And certainly, the genealogy is doing that. So as Matthew opens up with this genealogy, the genealogy is very really significant. And if you have your Bible, in most translations, most English translations, the genealogy, starting in verse 2, well, kind of starting in verse 1, but uh, verse 2, uh, is broken into three paragraphs. Verses 2 through the middle of verse 6 is one paragraph. And note in the middle of verse six is actually a second paragraph. Mm-hmm. And then six through a middle of verse six through verse 11 is the second paragraph. And then verses 12 through 16 is the third paragraph. And the reason why we know that that's actually correct is because verse 17 tells us,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it says in verse 17, therefore all the generations from Adam to David are 14 and from David to the deportation to Babylon is 14. And from the deportation of Babylon to the time of Christ are 14. And so two through six, is Abraham to David. The middle of verse 6 to verse 11 is David to the exile. And verses 12 through 16 are the exile to Jesus. And Matthew says, oh, and by the way, there's 14 generations in each one of these groups. Now, here's the significance. First off, uh, the genealogy doesn't match up with the Old Testament.
0: Wait, there's not actually 14? There's more. It's not symmetrical?
1: Correct. It's obvious, by the way, because you're going through about what almost 2000 years of history. Mm-hmm. And I don't think 42 generations is going to cover 2000 years of history. Mm-hmm. And so what happens actually is Matthew's genealogy is selective. it leaves out names and it leaves out names most likely because it wants to have 14, 14 and 14. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Now it's not a problem because the phrase, you know, was the father of could literally be translated. As was the ancestor of mm-hmm. and all Jewish people know their history and know their ancestry. And so they know Matthew's omitting names and he's omitting names because he wants it to be 14, 14 and 14. He's also arranging this in three groups. And those three groups are telling you the story of the old Testament from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian exile. And from the Babylonian exile to Jesus, And maybe I should just briefly discuss what the Babylonian exile was for those who haven't you know, been listening before or haven't understand, understood it at all. Um, Really simply, God makes a promise to Abraham. That's where the story starts. That promise is, I want you to come to this land, and I'm going to show you to you, and I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. And then he ultimately gives them the law through Moses. And the answer is, if you guys obey this law, I'm going to bless you. All the nations will know how great a God I am. It'll be awesome. And the blessings will be long life in the land and lots of fertility, both in people and obviously even in your animals. And Moses, of course, says, and if you don't obey the covenant, or God says to Moses, I'm going to kick you out of the land. You don't get to keep the land any longer. And they get sent away. And we call that the exile. And that exile happened in two different stages. The Northern tribes were sent off into Assyria in the eighth century BC. And the Southern tribes of Judah were sent off into the Babylonian exile uh, near the end of the seventh century and the beginning of the sixth century, you know, 586 BC or 605 and 586 BC are kind of your, your key dates for the Babylonian exile. Now, the significance of that for understanding what's going to happen next is really significant. We'll get into this this week and maybe even a little bit next week also. Because some of you might know your Old Testament story. And you're like, okay, well, they came back from that exile. And indeed, they were allowed to come back about 70 years later. And you know, actually in the 530s or so BC, they were allowed to come back. They actually rebuilt the temple in 516 BC, which is destroyed in 586 BC, 86, 87 BC, somewhere on there. And so they kind of have the semblance of being back in the land, but here's the significance. They didn't have independence. They didn't have a Jewish state of Israel or nation state of Israel at all. When they came back, they, they came back because the Persian um, King Cyrus said they can come back and they remained under the Persians and then under the Medes. And then later on they were under the Greeks and then they were under the Romans and they had a little window if you know your history of the Hasmonean reign, where they were kind of an autonomous Jewish state, but even then they were still never truly autonomous and truly free. So the first problem is, is that when the prophets say, after God sends you away, he's going to bring you back. Uh, it says, when you come back, it'll be even better than it was before. There'll be this glorious restoration. Haggai says the, the latter glory of the temple will be greater than the former glory. Oh, this would be so awesome. And they're back in the land and it ain't so awesome. Right. they're still subject peoples.
0: Well, and we kind of knew that just to interject, we know that like in Daniel nine, when Daniel yeah. says, hey, the end of the 70 years that's is right. coming and he prays for repentance. And God basically is like, hey, great prayer. But no, this is still going to be going on for a little while longer.
1: It's seven times longer. Right. Mm-hmm. 70 times seven. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so Daniel nine specifically says it'll be increased 70, uh, seven times longer. And that's probably not a literal number of 490 yeah. years. But nonetheless, don't worry about it. You also have Nehemiah and Ezra who are both like maybe the last, quote unquote, uh, to be written, who both make statements like we are back in the land, but we're still like slaves in it. And because they were, they were slaves to Persia and they were slaves to Greece or slaves uh, at the time of Jesus to to Rome. So the the idea that they had come back was there. But the reality was this actually isn't the restoration that God promises. So we're not really back in the land because we don't have our freedom. The other key that we'll get into, especially with John's gospel, we'll touch on in, this gospel, in the gospel of Matthew also, is that the prophet Ezekiel says that, and Ezekiel at the time of the Babylonian exile. So he's sent away during, while he's writing his book, he goes off into Babylon. And Daniel, obviously, and his buddies were in Babylon. And Ezekiel says that God left too. Not only did we get kicked out of the land, but God left also. In fact, the book of Ezekiel says He was by the river Shabar. This is chapter one of Ezekiel. He's in Babylon, and God appears to him. It's like, see, God's not in Jerusalem any longer. He's now here in Babylon with us, with the exiles. And so they were not only looking for a restoration from exile, they were looking for a glorious restoration uh, that would be better than before, and it would include God coming back also. Mm -hmm. And this is what we see. We discussed this with Mark chapter one. Gospels are telling us, Jesus is the beginning of this glorious restoration. And Matthew's telling us this by giving us a genealogy and the genealogy says, look, he's actually descended from Abraham. And that means he's the heir of the, of the promises. And then he's from David. He means he's the King. And then he's from the, the end of the exile. And that means he's ending the exile. He's the God who's coming back from the East and note by the wise men are coming from the east right the stars coming from the east it's the shekinah glory that's coming back to the land uh, and the nations are following it too they're coming in because the restoration is going to be this including in the nations so that's the first thing about the genealogy it's actually really important i remember thinking okay when you start your bible reading you just skip the first 17 verses we go to matthew 1 verse 18 you know, genealogies are like old testament stuff but Matthew's actually using it to tell us this is the story of jesus I mean, this is, this is
0: theological. This is, you know, genealogy is its own genre, but right here it's, it's actually communicating a deep, rich theological message.
1: Yes. Very deep theological message. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of Israel. And we're going to build on that next couple of times. He's fulfilling the story of Israel. And at least for now, we'll say he's the God of Israel coming back to the land, announcing the great restoration. And as Mark and Luke stress also, that to enter that restoration, to partake of that restoration, to be part of the blessing, you must repent. Well, why then does Matthew have like, well, 14 generations? What's significant about that? Uh, Why 14, 14, 14? Why omit all these names so that he has three patterns of 14? Well, the significance is this, and you see this in the book of Revelation where people think of this most often, but it's not just in Revelation. It's an ancient practice called gametria. I don't know if you remember this, Vinny, but you're Greek textbook and your uh, Hebrew textbook probably mm-hmm. yep. had numerical values for each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet mm-hmm. and for the Greek alphabet. This is common in the ancient world. There's actually a graffiti found Pompeii Mount Vesuvius erupts and, and the city's like just preserved really, really well. Right. And one of the graffitis on the wall says, I love the girl whose number is five, four, five. It's like, okay, I'm not telling you her name, but that's her number. And what it is, is, n- is words and names have a numerical value based on the letters of the, the Hebrew letters, Aleph being one, Beit being two, or um, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, uh, one, two, three, four, and all the way to 10, then 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, 100. And so there's these numerical values. Well, David's name is 14. The numerical value is, of David is D, and then the V, and then the, and then the D, because there's only um, consonants in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, come up to fourteen. That's very likely what's happening there. That's why there's 14 generations. Not only that, but 14 is seven times two. Uh, And this, you could say I'm stretching it. That's fine. And we'll just move on. Like, okay, just like fast forward the next 30 seconds of the podcast (laughs) and move on. But I have a suspicion that what is also involved in that is that there's seven, seven in the first, in the first generation, like there's two sevens. The next part of the, of the genealogy from David, uh, from Abram to David, then from David to the exile, that has seven and seven. And then from the exile to Jesus, that has seven. There's six sevens. The seventh seven is now beginning with Jesus.
0: And to read a really good article on the use of numbers in the biblical literature see Rob's book, Follow the Lamb, because you have a chapter on that as as it relates to Revelation. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: thank you. As it relates to the book of Revelation, that's right. So now, these aren't the only numerical patterns in the Gospel of Matthew. Let me note a couple more. We're going to discuss this in more detail, that Matthew has five speeches of Jesus, very likely because one of the major themes in in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is the new Moses. Now, he's not just Moses. He's going to be greater than Moses. But Moses wrote the five books, right? That's just the Jewish way of thinking. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Jesus has five speeches. And these five speeches are clearly marked. So the ending of each one of them is, they're identical. It says at the end of each one of the speeches, when Jesus had finished saying these words, and then it goes on, the sentence continues. And that's a long enough phrase that's identical that says, okay, this is marking the end of these speeches. So we we know what the end of the speeches are, we might dispute on one case, like does the sermon in Matthew 24 and 25, does it begin in 23, or does it begin in 24? Well, we know where it ends, because 26 verse 1 says, when he finished saying these words. So, five speeches. There are actually 12 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew says, this was to fulfill. And we'll see five of them in the, in the first couple of chapters that we'll get into soon. There's also uh, three sections of 14 generations, of course, in David's name in Hebrews 14. And another example, actually, is the name "Son of Man." The "Son of Man" the title "Son of Man" is used for Jesus' earthly mission seven times. The phrase "Son of Man" occurs ten times when referring to Jesus being rejected as a Son of Man, and it's used fourteen times referring to Jesus' future glory. And so, all right, that that seems to make sense. And by the way, in the Book of Revelation, the name Jesus occurs fourteen times. And the very first description of Jesus in the book of Revelation is He's the faithful witness, and of course seven being perfection, witness being two, seven times two is fourteen. So it seems that these are legitimate things that Matthew is doing. And If you're like, oh, I don't know if I if I buy that, guys, all the gospel writers are doing these things. John has seven miracles, seven signs. John has seven days in the first couple of chapters. I am saying to occur seven times. So they're doing it, and they're and they like doing it, and they thought it was great and people knew it was there and they looked for these kind of things. So how much of this is the case? You always have to be careful with. you know, when someone says, okay, well this word occurs, you know, eight times. And that refers to the mark on Gorbachev's forehead. It's like, okay, no, nah, no, nah, I don't think so. But- and
0: we've referred to this in previous episodes when we talked about how to read the Bible and, and how to be responsible about looking for these things and not over-spiritualizing yeah.
1: them, but recognizing they're there. Yeah, they're there. And what they do is they enhance the meaning that's already mm-hmm. in the text. It doesn't reveal some secret meaning that can only be decoded with a box of, ch- of Cracker Jacks, mm-hmm. right? And the secret decoder ring in, in your Cracker Jacks box. I, I spent like 20 bucks before I finally got that decoder ring too. I'm like, oh, it didn't even work. So, oh, Wait, you me. didn't use that as a source for your books? No, I I, I, oh, could, I couldn't cite it because I didn't know how to- You couldn't cite the Cracker Jack box. <laughs> I, could, I didn't know how to put it in the footnotes, yeah. So it, it wasn't like, a, hey, how do you cite Cracker Jacks?
0: So what's the Turabian form for yeah. citing a Cracker Jack box? <laughs> Hey, Rob, anything coming up for you that you want to let our friends know about?
1: Yeah, we'll be getting some more information out to you soon, but on February 11th, I'll be participating in a Zoom conference uh, from Evangelicals for Justice. Uh, We'll be doing a session on Friday the 11th, and I'll be presenting on having hard conversations in the church is the title. And my particular section will be having hard conversations in the church on Israel-Palestine. And I know we'll have a couple other presenters, and they'll be doing having hard conversations in the church on other topics that you may or may not agree with, but... How do we have these hard conversations? So we'll get some information on how to sign up and how to get involved with that uh, as soon as we have it.
0: Awesome. Make sure to check out uh, Rob's Facebook page, as I'm sure he'll upload that information and uh, try to check out that event.
1: The next thing that's happening then is this. And what we're going to look at as we proceed is that Matthew's telling the story of Israel as fulfilled and lived out by Jesus. He's the consummate Israel fulfilling that story of Israel. That's why it goes from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile to Jesus. Ah, all the story is coming and being fulfilled in Jesus. The next thing then is Matthew one verse twenty one is this famous statement that we have, the angels appearing to Joseph and says, "Don't worry about it. The, the child that's in, in Mary's womb, it's all from God. It's all good." And it says, "He will save his people from their sins." And the question is like, well, well, what sins are we talking about? Now we Western individualistically minded people who think the bible is all about our personal salvation so we can go to heaven when we die which is not what it's about there's truth there it is about our personal salvation that's true it's not necessarily about going to heaven when we die though we may go there if christ doesn't return now but that's not our, our eternal destiny our eternal destiny is the new jerusalem which comes down from heaven to the earth he will save his people from their sins the sins that sent you into exile And if you remember when we did our study of the gospel of Mark, we began the very first session with Mark one quoting the book of Isaiah and Isaiah says, okay, comfort. Now comfort my people. You've, You've received double for all your sins and therefore rejoice because now your sins have been forgiven. We're making a highway in the desert for our God. That's how Mark's gospel begins. Your sins have been forgiven. The ones that sent you into exile. And that's very likely what Matthew means also when the angel appears to Joseph and says, Uh, that this child will save his people from their sins. It's the sins that resulted in the exile. So
0: the idea of Jesus saving people from their sin, like you're rightly uh, wanting to push back against the the Billy Graham model of uh, how we just individualize everything. This idea is connected way back to the Old Testament. It's it's all the exile language. And that's even a theme that we see throughout the New Testament that I think we don't know what to do with. So we actually sometimes we don't even see it that it's there. We just, we just completely gloss over it. Uh, Thank God for guys like N.T. Wright, who really bring that theme out, right? Yes, correct. How how would you see then this idea of exile, exodus, covenant playing through Jesus? and, And how does that connect?
1: What's happening in the gospel of Matthew is that the restoration from exile is happening through Jesus. And he's describing the story of Jesus in light of the story of Israel from Abraham all the way on through being lived out by Jesus. And it's this new Exodus and this new Exodus comes through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the result of that becomes that those who follow Jesus become the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is, and we're going to draw this out even more as we, as we proceed, that Jesus is this new Moses. Mm-hmm. So we've got these five sermons of Jesus that I mentioned earlier, and they're all marked clearly by having the statement that when Jesus had finished saying these words, uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the famous ser- Sermon of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount, begins with blessed, 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 You know, blessed of the poor in spirit, blessed, all right, There's, there are these blessings. When Moses gives the law to the people of Israel, especially the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus, notes this, the covenant is that if you do these things, you're going to be blessed. But if you do, don't do these things, you're going to be cursed. You have these blessings and curses, blessings and curses. And the people of Israel were supposed to every year annually recite the blessings and recite the curses so that they were reminded of the covenant. So in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the first sermon, you've got these blessings that are there. When you read Matthew 23, you have these curses. Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, hypocrites. You go to land and sea to try to make a single convert. When you do, you make them twice, twice as much a son of hell as you are. All right. there, there's your curses. There's your blessings and there's your curses. So, And those are t- two of the sermons. The next thing to note is that, Mo, you know, where did Moses finish his life? Where did Moses end his life?
0: Uh, up on the mountain, overlooking the people who are going to be going into the promised land. But then he had to write about his death because he wrote about it.
1: So Moses ends his life on Mount Nebo. And clearly mm-hmm. somebody penned the book of Exodus or the book of Deuteronomy and added Moses' death into the story. If if we think Moses wrote actually wrote the, wrote the book of Deuteronomy. So Moses ends his life on Mount Nebo. And Mount Nebo is in modern day Jordan. And it overlooks the Dead Sea Valley and the Jordan River Valley. And beyond that, it's about 4,000 feet in elevation from Mount Nebo. The Dead Sea Valley is, you know, 1,000 feet below sea level. So it's a significant drop. You can see, obviously, the hills of Judea and the Promised Land. So Moses is looking into the Promised Land. And he's essentially saying, hey, go ye, therefore, into the Promised Land. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, as we're going to discuss a little bit more detail later, ends with Jesus going up on a mountain. And he goes to a mountain in Galilee. And he gives them the great commission. And he says, go ye therefore into all the nations. And so there's a parallel between Moses's life and Jesus's life and the way they both end there. So the promise then is that now the blessing is going to include the whole world. So you now go out into the entire world and make them disciples of all nations. And as I mentioned, that's why the wise men are coming from the East and symbolizing the nations are coming in to worship this new king.
0: All right, so the first few chapters of Matthew have five stories that describe some of these fulfillment motif. How how do you connect to that? What do you do with this?
1: Yeah, so Matthew's gospel begins with five passages that says this was to fulfill. So obviously this hey Joseph, don't worry about it. Mary's actually pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and this was to fulfill that the Virgin shall be with child. And then of course Jesus and his family they they escape Herod and they go off into Egypt, and this was to fulfill because out of Israel, out of Egypt did I call my son. Mm-hmm. So we have these five fulfillment passages. So Matthew's clearly telling us, hey, look, Jesus is fulfilling this Old Testament story in his life. And I think that's a significant, actually, totally, uh, there are 12 fulfillment passages in the entire Gospel of Matthew. I think I mentioned that earlier. So you you see that Matthew's using these numbers significantly.
0: All right. So to summarize what you're saying, then the the opening of Matthew links all of Matthew's story and the Jesus story back to Genesis, back to the beginning. There's obviously a connection between Jesus and Moses. We see that Matthew wants us to view Jesus and his life in light of the fulfillment of the entire old Testament story. Right right? So is, is there anything else then for this? Oh, I mean, that, that's huge right there. But yeah. is, is there anything else that we would want to include other than those insignificant details that don't really matter much? That are right. just All right. huge? So <laughs> as,
1: Yeah, very good. So as you're reading the gospel of Matthew, as you're getting started, again, what Vinny's just summarized very well is that Matthew's telling the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of the story of Israel. In addition to that, it's the fulfillment of the promises that, that God made in Genesis. And in addition to that, Jesus is this new Moses-like guy, like, like person. So he goes up on a mountainside and he gives the, uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, blessed, 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 just like Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the law. He's giving this new law. So think about Jesus as this fulfillment of this Old Testament story and the story of Israel and the welcoming back of the exiles and the end of the exile through, through repentance in him. The other big thing I think that we want to look at is this, the gospel of Matthew also has this, in, has an inclusio. And we mentioned, I think inclusio before where you have a similar phrase at the beginning and a similar phrase at the end. And that can mark like a section, like the Beatitudes have a be, have are marked at the beginning with uh, theirs is, is the kingdom of heaven. And the last Beatitude says, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's your inclusio. There's your beginning. There's your end. Cause remember this was an oral document. It was read out loud. So they couldn't see chapter breaks and paragraph breaks and subject headings and, things of that nature. And they didn't have them in the text anyways, and that's obviously why. So they have to have these audible things that you can hear, go, hey, I heard that before. Okay, this must be the end. And so those end could mark a section or it could mark the whole book. So Matthew 1, verse 23, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Okay, now, if you're thinking carefully, you might go, okay, wait a minute. They named the kid Jesus. I mean, it says like two verses later, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It's like, dude,
0: they screwed that two one up. Two verses
1: ago, it says, <laughs> call his name Emmanuel. You realize that Emmanuel is not his name, it's a the title. title. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's who he is. And, and the word Emmanuel means God with us. He is God. This is who he's going to be. Mm-hmm. His name is Jesus, which is Hebrew. It's in Hebrew, it's Joshua, it's the Lord saves. Then you go to the end of the gospel of Matthew now, and and that's, by the way, that tells you what I was saying earlier, that the story of Israel, of end of the exile, that God's coming back. God is going to, this is God with us. God has come back to the land. His presence is amongst us and that's who Jesus is. He's God with us. And obviously the gospel of John is going to take that to like another whole level, right? Of, of Jesus being this kind of glory and all that. So Matthew 28. Now the gospel ends, we mentioned already with Moses, like Moses going up on Mount Nebo and giving the command to go into the promised land. So Jesus goes up on a mountain in Galilee and says, Go ye therefore into the promised land. But it gives him a new covenant and all authority on earth is given to me. In verse 18, go ye therefore and make disciples. And, and then verse 20 says this teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Ah, the gospel started by saying, He's going to be God with us. And it ends by saying, and he's going to remain being God with us. Mm-hmm. He's still with us. Because you could think, oh, if he's God with us, then when he died and rose again, oh, he's not God with us anymore. And the gospel ends by saying, no, I'm actually going to remain God with us. And Luke is going to bring this out. And certainly John does also. That the way in which Jesus remains the God with us is to the coming power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go a little bit deeper with this because I think this is so central. One of the things that you've listened to us this podcast or my teachings before my some of my blogs or whatever before is I have this strong kind of I'd say repulsion of maybe the evangelical theology that I was raised with that is all about you know being saved and going to heaven when you die. And I'm not saying that's not in the gospel I'm just saying that's like so a minor part of the gospel story. And I don't mean minor like it's insignificant. I mean, there's a lot more there. First off, it's not just about being saved and going to heaven when you die. Because one of the problems with that theology is it says, I'm done. I got saved. There's nothing left to do. And, you know, Vinny, you're a pastor and I've, if you've ever been in a pulpit, it's, it's really hard to preach a sermon when the people sitting out there going, hey, I'm done. Uh, unless the sermon is... You got to get saved, which, by the way, if you go to a prison, that's what every sermon's about. It's like those guys have been saved like every week, like three times (laughs) every Sunday night. Yeah, Yeah, it's like give them something more, guys. They want something more. Now, some of the guys need to be saved. They're they're Mm -hmm. new prisoners. But Mm -hmm. the ones who go Sunday nights, you've been on Sunday night, too, right? The ones who go Sunday night, they already went to church Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are really committed. Give them something else. And they they just long for this meat they might even know scripture better than you because <laughs> uh, they have nothing else to do a lot, a lot, they do their Bibles and, and they're legit like up.
0: yeah yeah they,
1: and some of them are taking they were taking seminary yep. seminary classes in yep. prison it's like they, they really do and they're, they're yeah. just oh my heart bleeds for these for yep. these guys like okay look this guy's reformed let him out right mm-hmm. he needs mm-hmm. he's got a lot of good work for the kingdom to do let him go let him, yep. you know, obviously you can't do it that way but nonetheless uh, that's one problem is it, it leads to the apathy. If, if the gospel is about getting saved and I got saved, then I have nothing else to do until Christ comes again or I get to go to heaven someday when I get raptured up or I, or I go uh, or I die. Uh, that's problematic theology. The idea becomes behind that as well, all we can do is like, hey, it would be good if you guys were good. Uh, hey, try hard to like love people and, and don't lie. And maybe you don't cheat on your taxes like a lot, maybe a little bit, but not a lot we preach moralism, we preach, just be good. I may have said this on the podcast before, but I told my congregation one time, I said, look, if I get done with a sermon and what you heard, what you heard me say was try harder instead of shaking my hand on the way out, slap me in the face mm-hmm. because that's the gospel is not try harder, mm-hmm. right? The gospel is like live more, but rely upon the spirit more. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a try harder element, but it's not like of your own power and will it's mm-hmm. by relying on the spirit more. So we end up preaching passivism. Like I have nothing else to do now. I'm, I'm done, apathy or try harder and just be good. But instead the gospel is like, no, God chose you and called you for a purpose. And that purpose, like first Peter two, nine says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and His marvelous light. Oh, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So that you can proclaim his excellencies. God didn't save you for yourself. Let's just get over this. He saved us so that we could be used by Him. And specifically, what is to be used by Him to do is to make Him known. This would be a major theme in the Gospel of John. It's to make Him known. And if we think about it this way, when Adam and Eve sinned, if you're we just taking the Gospel story of, of the book of Genesis as it is, what they did was they failed to bear God's image. Because to bear God's image is to recognize the fact that God is the one who makes the rules. He's the sovereign king and we're rulers. Remember, they're going to rule the earth and subdue it underneath him, but it's his laws that are the laws and mm-hmm. his rules that are the rules. And he's the, the one who ordains the rules, I guess I'd say. He's, he's the rule maker. And when Adam and Eve did said, no, we're going to decide for ourselves what's good and evil, what, what, what's right and what's wrong. I think we could go ahead and eat this apple or whatever food it happened to be. We're going to go ahead and eat it. And what they're doing is they're taking autonomy for themselves. Instead of submitting to God's kingship, they're, they're submitting the kingship for themselves. So what was lost then was this bearing of God's image, reflecting of God's glory. What was, and that's what happened when we were expelled from the Garden of Eden. We, that God's presence was in the garden and we were expelled from that presence. So the biblical story now, is a story about the restoration of God's presence to his creation. Or you can say the restoration of God's creation to his presence, either way. Mm. And when God makes this covenant with Abraham, the covenant is, I'm going to be with you. And other words, the whole idea of God making a temple in Israel. is That's where I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to dwell in your presence and I'm going to be with you. And the idea ultimately was eventually that presence is going to spread throughout the entire earth. Because the whole earth, is, the whole world is full of his glory, right? God's glory is going to expand the whole earth. So Leviticus 26, verse 11 through 13, is one of the iterations of God's covenant with Israel. And in the covenant with Israel, he says, look, if you do these things, I'm going to bless you. And if you don't do these things, I'm going to curse you. And in Leviticus 26, it just kind of gives all the blessings. It starts in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and you keep my commandments, and you carry them out, verse 4, then I shall give you, and this long list of all the things God's going to give you. I'm going to give you rain. The land's going to produce its crops and its trees. I'm going to grant you peace in the land, verse 6. And I'm going to give you all these things. And then it's, it says in verse 9, I'm going to turn you toward and, and make you fruitful and multiply you. Ah, there's this Genesis language, right? This covenant language of what Adam and Eve were created to do, to, to be fruitful and multiply. So this covenant that God makes with Israel as it's given given in Leviticus 26, is kind of this restoration of Eden promise. Eventually, I'm going to restore Eden and my Edenic presence to you. And we see that in verse 11. It says, moreover, I'll make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you should be my people. Now, the word walk here is the same word that Genesis 3.8 says that God used to walk in Eden in the cool of the day, or whatever time of the day it might have been. Ah, uh, I'm going to restore my Edenic presence among you if you are faithful. Now, guess what happens? We've already told the story. They aren't faithful, and they get expelled from the land. Again, when they're expelled from the land in this exile, we call it the exile, It's they're also sent away from the presence of God. But we also mentioned that God's presence is going to actually go with them. They're not going to quite have what they had in, the garden, had, had in the temple, but nonetheless, God's presence is going to go with them. Now turn to the book of Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, it refers back to to Leviticus 26 again. Turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, verse 24 through 28. Now remember Ezekiel we mentioned earlier was one of the prophets that was sent into exile himself. He's in Babylon with the people. So this is right around the time of 586 and 605 when all this stuff is happening. The temple is going to be destroyed and then it gets destroyed. And he's talking about the restoration in, verse, in chapter 37. It's about the valley of dry bones. He's going to make these bones live. And it's going to be the house of Israel and the house of Judah coming back. And then it says this in verse 24. My servant David, this is Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them. They'll have one shepherd. And they'll walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and they'll observe them. He's talking about the restoration. When, when God restores his presence to them, he's going to set, not the actual David himself, because that David's already dead but a new David, a new King David. And obviously we see it's Jesus. Verse 25, they shall live on the land that I gave them with Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they'll live on it. And they and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And I'll make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst Forever. Another word for sanctuary is this temple language, but notice the reference to Leviticus also, right? I will multiply them, which is Genesis language. Verse 27, my dwelling place also will be with them, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And then all the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Ah, here you go. What's happening in the Gospels, and we'll see this especially in the Gospel of John, but this is what Matthew's alluding to. The promise in Leviticus was, if you obey my covenant, I'll walk among you, I'll multiply you and make you fruitful, and I'll be your God and and you'll be my people. And then Ezekiel comes along and says, well, I know we're in exile, and you're probably thinking that that Leviticus promise is never going to happen because we've been sent out of the land and we didn't obey. And so The promise in Leviticus was, if you do obey, this is what you get. But I'm here to remind you that God's going to raise you from the dead and restore you to the land. He's going to set a Davidic king over you, and that Davidic king will will establish a land of peace, and you're going to live in the land, and it's going to be awesome, and I'm going to multiply you, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And I'll set my sanctuary in your midst forever. And this is exactly the language that John's gospel is picking up on, by saying Jesus tabernacled among us.
0: I, I literally just had that verse out. I was going to say, "There's no better verse than John one 14.
1: Yeah, like in, in,
0: in our passages, might or your Bible might say uh, he dwelt among us. That's right, but that's not, and, and that's true, but that's not capturing the right. idea that John's going
1: after, right? Right. So when Matthew's gospel begins by saying, "His name shall be Emmanuel," it means This is the God with us that you lost in the exile that Ezekiel said will be restored to you. And now Jesus comes along and says, oh, and by the way, at the end of the gospel, I'm going to send you my Holy spirit. And I'll be with you always, even in the end of the age. So the story of of Matthew's gospel is this ultimate story coming to fulfillment in Jesus from Abraham to David, to the exile, to Jesus, He's the new Moses, but he's more than Moses. He's actually Emmanuel, God with us. And it's just a phenomenal, fantastic story and what this means for God's covenant with, his, with the people of God.
0: Awesome. Well, I don't know if you're as excited as you were when we went through Mark, because you were pretty. I'll
1: get excited more when we get a little bit farther but in Matthew
0: too, because I was going to say, story, but you, 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 you got pretty close tonight. Yeah, maybe so. It's it's been a long week, so we'll chalk it up to (laughs) that. Awesome. Well, hey, excited to everyone come back next week as we continue in this and we just unfold some of these themes very similar to what we did in the Gospel of Mark. And we just hope that this helps you understand the book better. I don't know. I think we're going to have some fun going along the way. So thanks, Rob. Have fun this week and we will catch everyone next week. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.